This ReachMD program is featured on Sermo, a free online community exclusively for physicians. To discuss this program with your colleagues, visit www.sermo.com. That's S-E-R-M-O dot When you join, enter ReachMD in the promotion box to receive a $15 Amazon gift card. Listen all month as ReachMD XM157 explores The Great Debate, a special series discussing the future of public health policy in America. You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Are cutting health care costs and improving quality of health care incompatible goals? Welcome to our special series on health care policy. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, author of You Can Think Like a Psychiatrist, your host. And with me today is Schwartz Senior Fellow at the New America Foundation, Shannon Brownlee. Shannon is the author of a new book called Overtreated, Why Too Much Medicine is Making Us Sicker and Poorer. Welcome to ReachMD. I'm happy to be with you. Now, Shannon, you make the, the somewhat provocative argument in your book, Overtreated, that we as a nation suffer from an overuse of costly medical diagnostics and treatments. What options do we have to reverse this trend? It's not going to be easy. And the thing that we're doing right now is exactly the wrong thing to do, which is to squeeze reimbursements to physicians. But this is the, the technique that private insurers and Medicare keep turning back to, and it simply doesn't work. And so we've got to think more strategically about how we can, in effect, right-size our healthcare system for the populations that are served in different areas. And I think one way to do that is to look at systems that really work. And we have some really good models around the country. It's going to be hard for a lot of listeners to believe, but the Veterans Health Administration is one of those systems. The Mayo Clinic is one of those systems. Group Health in Seattle, a number of group practices, salaried group practices. And when I say these, these should be models, I say it for a couple of reasons. One reason is that they do a good job of taking care of patients, and they do it for lower utilization, which means lower costs. And so we should look at how they're doing it, what it is that they do that allows them to be more efficient, to have the same outcome for lower utilization and lower costs. And they organize care. They are much more organized than most hospitals, than most communities. I mean, when you think about it, going to the hospital is sort of like going to the mall, where you go from one store to another, and no shopkeeper in any particular store knows what you've been doing in another store. And that's kind of what it's like to go to hospitals. This is incredibly wasteful. It's disorganized. It leads to increased errors. It leads to increased overutilization. And so, obviously, organization is one of the things that we have to do. Somebody has to be the point person. Is that the primary care physician? Is that a case manager? Who is the organizer in these systems that do seem to work better? Well, one of the tragedies of the 1990s in managed care is that it drove the reimbursements for primary care physicians down even faster than it drove down anybody else's reimbursement. And it drove a lot of physicians out of practice. And so, We're now looking at fewer and fewer primary care physicians. Many of those slots are now being filled by foreign medical graduates who end up going to rural parts of the country. And primary care physicians, family practitioners, internists, to some degree gynecologists, but the doctor who looks at the whole patient really needs to be in charge and really needs to be compensated for the kind of time that it takes to care for complicated cases. When I say complicated cases, I'm, I mean mostly people with chronic disease. Chronic disease eats up the bulk of the money that we spend. And within that population, it is the hospitalizations that eat up the bulk of the money. And for many of these people, if they're managed better, 
they're managed in a more organized way, they can be kept out of the hospital, they will cost us less, and they'll be healthier. What can we do to try to modify our current way of practice to be more in line with the systems approach that you've discussed? Well, I think that's the the most important thing that we can do. And that means, of course, we have to change the payment system. This is not going to happen out of the goodness of physicians' hearts and the goodness of, of hospitals' hearts. And in fact, it's been tried in a number of places. In my book, I give an example of of Bellingham, Washington, which tried to do this for its patients with diabetes and chronic heart failure. And the hospital and the specialists lost their shirts. They simply couldn't do what patients really needed, and they couldn't organize care and still, still make a profit. So we have to change the payment system to get to increase this organization. But we also have to increase the data, the the evidence that we have for what works and what doesn't in medicine. And to do that, I think we need to make a public investment. We can't keep leaving that kind of research to the drug industry. But isn't that seen as controlling and government sticking its nose into places where it shouldn't? It is, and I find this argument just ridiculous. Why is it worse to have have the federal government pay for research, which would be done by academics? in academic institutions, academic medical institutions, why is it worse to have that money come out of the federal government than it is to come out of the drug industry? I mean, the drug industry has enormous control over what we do in medicine in terms of research. And and it has a motive, and that motive is to make a profit. That's what it's supposed to do. So the idea that, you know, that, that federally funded research is instantly going to be worse research than what gets done now, I find just, I just don't see this as a credible argument. Now, tell us about, you talk about in your writing about the back pain story. Tell us about that. I spoke with two people, a physician named Michael Stewart and a woman named Sherry Streit, and together they have formed a company called the Delphini Group. And what they do is they go around the country helping physicians learn to read medical evidence better. I mean, I know you guys suffer through biostatistics in med school, but many of you come out not really very well trained in how to look at a medical study, at a research study, and know whether or not it's high quality, know whether there's been shenanigans with the data, or to even be able to sort of dissect that data. And so what they do is they go around the country and they help physicians learn how to do this a whole lot better. And they actually ran one of these sessions in Boise, I think it was a a year ago, with physiatrists and back surgeons and sort of got the back surgeons really up on how to critique the studies in their own field. And many of the surgeons were really shocked to find that the evidence for their own surgery really isn't very good. We really have never done a truly randomized controlled clinical trial of spinal fusion, for example, to see whether or not it really is better than less invasive surgery. Did they actually do less surgery after evaluating the literature? I don't think that they did. I don't think there's any evidence that they did. I mean, this, you know, we're striking at people's livelihoods here. And so this is very difficult. This is going to be a very wrenching time as we start to really gather evidence because somebody's ox is going to be gored. Well, and our whole belief system. I mean, if you spend your days doing back surgery, I I hope that you believe that it works. And if someone then comes in and tells you, well, it really doesn't, uh, you know, then you start questioning why I go to work every day. Well, I think it was kind of unnerving for some of the physicians. I'll tell you another story that, that struck me in this area. This is in your specialty. I was at an FDA hearing, and it came out during this advisory committee hearing that there were many, many studies that had been done of the SSRIs, the antidepressants, that had found that they were no better than placebo. And there was a psychiatrist on the panel 
who said, this is news to me. And he was really kind of shaken by this realization that there were all these studies out there that had found that the drugs were no more effective than placebo. Mm, it is. It's, you know, it, it's what we do all day long. We hate to think that it's really not worthwhile. Right. Why am I prescribing these if I'm not sure that they're really going to be better? If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is award-winning science writer Shannon Brownlee. We are discussing how to fix the healthcare overutilization that she says is rampant in this country. Now, Shannon, let's talk for a moment about doctors and do we really need more physicians and more training programs, as is so often recommended. This is a very controversial area, and the argument that says that we need more physicians is based on an assumption that medicine works the way most goods and services work, that the supply of the providers, in this case, used to be called doctors, now you're called providers. <laughs> Which we um, don't like, by the way. <laughs> a good. I think it's a horrible thing, and I think that, it, that calling patients consumers is almost as bad. <laughs> So the assumption is is that the supply of physicians is sensitive to the demand for their services. And the demand for their services is based on whether or not people can pay for their services through insurance and how sick they are. And this is probably the, one of the most important sort of take-home messages I've gleaned from my research is that that isn't always true, that the need for services is not what necessarily determines the supply of physicians. And so these projections that are based on the assumption that economics really works in medicine may be completely wrong. And we know that there could be real repercussions for training a whole lot more specialists, and one of them is driving up the cost of care and driving up more and more overutilization. You make some excellent points in your writing about the value of shared decision-making. Tell us a bit about that. You know, it's funny. This is this, in a way, is sort of harking back to an earlier time of medicine, especially for primary care physicians, when they really had time to sort of walk a patient through what the various options were. And so the idea of shared decision-making is to formalize that process and to say, how can we convey essential information to patients about what the risks and benefits are of any particular procedure or test? So an excellent example would be, for example, the PSA test. And you have a man in his 50s, and he's heard that he ought to get a PSA test. What should happen is he should go home with a video, or he should go home with brochures, or he should be able to call a hotline that really walks him through what the potential risks and benefits of getting that test really are. And what's really interesting is that it turns out that when patients go through shared decision-making, when you compare patients who go through it versus patients who don't, patients are more conservative when they go through shared decision-making. They are less likely to opt for invasive surgery, and they're less likely to opt for tests that might have a downside. So how can we incorporate that more into our everyday practices? Well, I think that there are going to be more and more tools available to physicians to be able to give their patients. More and more videos are going to be made available there are some commercial outfits that are trying to develop these tools. One of them is called Health Dialogue. There is an organization called the Institute for Informed Patient Choice, which can make some of this stuff available. But eventually, I think that payers are going to have to compensate physicians for the time that it's going to take 
to really help their patients understand what the pluses and minuses are of any procedure or test. Well, and of course, um, those of us in psychiatry and primary care especially know that we typically don't get compensated for talking to people certainly nearly as much as those that get compensated for doing something like cutting on people. Yeah, this imbalance is the other thing that really has to start to change. We need to compensate you for caring for patients and for outcomes, not for procedures. I mean, I'm not saying that you shouldn't be compensated for doing procedures, but, but we really need to sort of think about how we best care for patients and how we can compensate doctors for doing that. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh, I'm so glad I was, I was able to make it. Thanks. We've been discussing possible solutions to the current health care crisis with our guest, Shannon Brownlee. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to our special series on health care policy on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your questions and comments. Please visit us at ReachMD.com. Our new on-demand and podcast features will allow you to access our entire program library. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to ReachMD XM157 and The Great Debate, a month-long special series and discussion on the future of public health policy in America.